Hello, dear listener. Welcome to another episode of Gomology. Now, you know how every week I ask whether you could please um, share Gomology on your social media, tell a friend, um, leave a review on Apple Podcast. Yeah, I know, every week. So I'm not asking you that this week, but if you'd like to subscribe or follow, that would be absolutely brilliant. So uh, without further ado, let's head to uh, France and uh, check out some uh, wool-based legwear. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today, as a special treat, I've got two guests for you. Um, would either one of you like to introduce yourself first? I think I've been given the job, Nick, by, by my wife, Diane, who who sort of um, knows that I tend to talk a lot, so she's given me the platform to start. My name's Jamie Wellstead. I live in, here in France in the southwest near Toulouse with my wife, Diane. We've been here for 31 years. Uh, I'm essentially a textile designer from training, and I've worked in many, many different branches of the textile and clothing industry, which we can go into in as much detail as you care to. <laughs> I'm going to pass you to Diane, who will present herself. Okay, so I did not have textile background until I met Jamie. I just had knitting experience, which was really important to me, but um, was very ignorant of all things deeper than knit one, pearl one, and have osmosed all this information from Jamie. And we've worked together for many, many years. So I acquiesce to him. I, I give <laughs> over to him on, on the... Um, on the more technical sides, but I definitely have opinions about what is right. But we're, we have we have veto power each of us on on how we approach textiles. Yes, we tend to operate a filter system where, if both of us agree on something, it probably means we should do it. And uh, if if one of us doesn't agree, then the other person has to argue the case pretty strongly. Diane always plays herself down. She's a very talented graphic designer and knitwear designer. When I first met her, it was in Donegal in the northwest of Ireland. Uh, I was working there in my first job for a company called McNutt Weaving Company, who remain very good friends of ours to this day. Diane had approached Scott McNutt, who had a hand weaving company, and she said, I'd like to come and work in your company, and I, I will pay you. To, 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 because I want to learn about weaving. And he had a look at it and he said, you know what, I'll pay you to do knitwear design for me. So <laughs> that gives you an idea that she's she's got a lot more resources than she tends to put forward. She's very modest. Now, clearly there's some history before that as well. Can we sort of go right back to the start? Well, I, I studied textiles in Scotland. There's a place called the Scottish College of Textiles, which is quite well known for being um, a center of excellence, if you like, which marries the aesthetic with the technical side of textiles. We had people coming up from Royal College of Art to in London to the Scottish College of Textiles to get some more technical uh, background to their sort of aesthetic abilities. And so that, that was quite an interesting grounding in the sense that I'd, I'd sort of thought about studying art, but didn't think I was cut out to be a fine artist and 
probably wouldn't make any money for sure. And I thought that textiles was an interesting blend between creativity and business, which indeed it is. Of course, it's been throughout my sort of 43-year career, it's been gently sort of disappearing in Europe, which has been slightly ironic, but um, it's been a, a rich and, and colorful career. So it's been very good fun. Diane uh, actually studied in, uh, education and was a teacher in the States, uh, decided she didn't like teaching. I'm now telling her story, of course. Um, came to Ireland and uh, sort of fell into textiles. I think I'm going to pass that to you, Diane, to see wh what's your textile approach and how did you actually start thinking about it? I think you could say I was a knitting nerd who had a spinning wheel. <laughs> And it didn't, yeah. it didn't go any deeper than that because growing up in the Midwest of the States, um, textiles came from factories that were somewhere else. They, they, I didn't know where the other place was in the same way that, you know, um, pasta came from factories that were somewhere else. I didn't know you could do the whole thing yourself. So um, getting involved in a weaving mill in Ireland just opened up this huge world of how fibers are put together, how colors are chosen, how things are blended, how they are then woven or knit or how they're made into fabric. And that's pretty interesting. And so, yeah, I guess I guess just got hooked. So I think actually, Nick, that <clears throat> I was just back in Donegal, oddly enough, a couple of weeks ago doing some research on knitwear. And Diane's sitting beside me wearing a hand-knit Aran sweater, which I bought for her there. So Donegal, if you're looking at sort of the start of our passion for textiles, that was my first job. I was straight out of college. My first job was in Donegal for this company called McNutt, which was an absolutely extraordinary first job. Bill McNutt said to me, well, I suppose you'll need a car. And I said, well, yes, I need a car. He said, what, what would you like? And I said, <laughs> I sensed an opportunity and said, well, my goodness, I'm really going to miss my <clears throat> old Triumph Spitfire that I had when I was a student. And he said, oh, well, you'd better get one of those. So <laughs> in my first job, my company car was a sports car. And that kind of sums up the magic of Donegal. And that, of course, is where I met and married Diane. Uh, we met as friends. We became good friends uh, and then became more than that and ended up getting married in the Church of Ireland, which is a Protestant church, but we were very friendly with the Catholic priest. And he came along and read a, a lesson in our, at our wedding ceremony, which, if you can understand, in 1982, at the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, that was an absolutely extraordinary thing, to have a Catholic priest taking part in a Protestant wedding. So the whole thing about Donegal is kind of wrapped up in magic, just a quick, quick history on McNutt, because that was clearly a very big part of me meeting Diane and a big part of our embarking on a textile journey together. Um, <clears throat> McNutt was a company started in the 50s by two brothers, or cousins were they, sorry. And um, they were a hand-weaving company. And then sometime in the 70s, I would say, they said, we can't carry on hand weaving, we have to get properly industrial equipment. So they got Sommet weaving looms from Italy, which are rapier looms, which I can 
describe in detail if you want, but that basically a rapier loom like that at that time would be putting in about 200 weft insertions uh, per minute. And uh, so going from hand weaving, which was probably <laughs> 20 weft insertions per minute, <clears throat> one of the second generation McNutts called Scott McNutt said, this is a disaster. I don't want to lose hand weaving. I'm going to take the looms and set up another factory, which is going to be hand weaving. And he had a very, very successful business making furnishing fabrics, notably selling to Jack Leonard Larson and people like that in the States. And so this whole Donegal magic was at the start, at the very base of our, not only our relationship and our our marriage, but, uh, you know, the start of our professional careers in textiles. And over the years, you know, we've had four children and Diane has sort of come in and out of the picture. She was an absolutely fantastic mother. So for quite a number of years, she focused on that and then joined me and we started a company in, in, in France. Well, actually, I started a weaving company in Scotland. And then we started a, a clothing and accessory company in France in, in 2000 which was tremendously good fun. And that was that was our sort of real joint project together. If you'd like to talk about that, Dan, that was our, our company was called Hidden Cabin. And we had tremendously good fun doing that and made some very beautiful things, which I'm actually wearing right now. Diane, Hidden Cabin. Yeah, like we specialized in um, linen and leather, home goods, moving into clothing. M made a way too large collection. <laughs> but had so much fun with it um, and designing everything from anything that was textiles we designed from yarn forward, fiber forward. So um, really we're lucky in that we were able to put our fingerprint <clears throat> on the whole collection. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting point because normally somebody – with a company like that, you know, so we we started out making sort of home furnishings and then kind of morphed into actually making a collection of menswear, which women also like to wear. So we made sort of casual shirt jackets out of linen canvas, which we then did a, an enzyme stonewash on to give it a sort of sanded look. We made sweaters with four-ply silk wool tweeded yarns that came from a friend of ours in Barcelona. So my point really is that we, we had a small company making, as Diane says, a far too wide a range of products. Um, but because of my specific uh, experience in the sort of textile supply chain in, in terms of fiber, yarn, weaving, um, we could bring a rather richer offering to the table for our customers. So I think that was what was quite exciting about that. And if we fast forward, because <laughs> Hidden Cabin w existed from 2000 to 2015, um, we we were joined by a business partner in about 2013 and kind of took a wrong direction, um, not to bring too much of a negative into the conversation, but, you know, we, we took a wrong direction and ended up uh, in 2015 closing the company. Um so what we're doing now, Nick, is with, with Olaf McTarn, fast forwarding to the present day, is we absolutely wanted to make one 
very nice product. And I think that the, the, the sort of philosophy of Olaf McTarn is let's try to make a contribution to the effort which we all must make to reduce consumption, reduce consumption of clothing, reduce consumption of fuel for heating, uh, and, and try to be more responsible humans. You know, we, we we're faced with a huge ecological problem with global warming. The, the clothing and, and um, textile industry is, I think, the second most polluting in the world. I, I know that I've read a report that said that since the year 2005 or something like that, the consumption of clothing in the world has doubled and the population hasn't doubled. So you don't have to look too far to see that, you know, people are, for example, we just had St. Valentine's Day here. People are buying bright red dresses and polyester, wearing them for St. Valentine's Day, be, being seductive and then putting them in the bin. I mean, we we absolutely have to stop this practice of of wanton consumption and and waste. So it's, it's a very big subject for us. And Olaf, for us, is, is a tiny little gesture to say, do you know what? Before we had a company and we had 150 SKUs, I don't even know. It was probably 250. Now we've got one, well, actually two, because we make two sizes. What I'd like to do is head back to those heady early days, 1982 in Donegal, you were whizzing about in your Triumph Spitfire, doing something or other in the weaving industry. Diane, you were there as a fresh knitwear designer. What was the industry like in those days? What, I'm, I'm trying to sort of think, what, what has changed from then to today and what has happened in the meantime? Clearly, if you're being offered the car of your choice as a company car, they must have been doing pretty well. Well, I think, Nick, part of it was that, well, certainly, and again, Jamie has talked about the magic of Donegal, but... People, we were making textiles with love. People were doing that. It was just part of the whole scene. There, there was a magic going on, Nick. I mean, at McNutt's, it was quite extraordinary at that time because people were putting advertisements in Vogue magazine saying, and I'm talking about, you know, Castelbajac or Claude Montana or Kenzo or... Those are the French designers, you know, and I can give you, you know, Jenny Group or lots of different people in Italy. <clears throat> they were advertising their garments and saying, this is a genuine McNutt fabric. It's, it's, it's almost unheard of. But when we were at McNutt, we were doubling the turnover every year. It was going crazy. And I was working personally with people like Kenzo, you know, going into his office and talking with them. And I've had the great privilege of doing that with Armani and Ralph Lauren and a lot of other people as well. Uh, but there was a magic. And I think what Diane refers to is there was a sort of an innocent naivety. We genuinely did things with love. With John McNutt, who who's like a brother to me, and people used to think we were brothers, sort of both with beards and long hair, looking a bit sort of hippie-like. Um, John and I used to debate it, you know, over <laughs> several beers or whiskeys. The debate being, do we think that the love that we put into it is sensed by the consumer? And one time I was in London and I stopped because this is me, right? So you can't stop me talking. 
um, unless you hit me on the head. And I was in the street in London. I saw a woman wearing one of our fabrics. And, you know, I, I take the risk. I, I go to say hello to her. And, of course, you might be told to F off. But I said, I, I just want to say hello and to say I'm so happy to see you wearing one of our fabrics from McNutt. And she lit up and she said, every time I wear this coat, I feel happy. I just love it. And, you know, that to me was a fabulous gift to, to be told that I'd created something that made somebody happy on a regular basis. And I think that sort of intimacy has slightly been lost in, in the all of the... When, when you compare that time to today, Nick, it's like that magic, that personal intimacy between the designer and the consumer has kind of been lost. I think it might be coming back. I mean, Diane and I share this enthusiasm for a return to craft. And I think that there's a lot of appreciation for craft textiles. And, you know, where, where does that take us? I think we're looking at somewhere between craft textiles and industrial textiles. There's maybe a middle ground that could be very fertile. That's our feeling. Because at that time, the textiles did actually have names. People knew that they wanted a Donegal Tweed or a Harris Tweed or a Loden Wool or whatever. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has gone missing now because now it's a, a no-name textile from somewhere. It's generic. And you know, you know the fabric mix of it. Mm. But I think it's coming back. There's a, there's a big return to sort of transparency in the supply chain provenance of textiles. I had a meeting with a spinning company in Yorkshire a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's very, very exciting because they're doing a program whereby essentially if you um, buy a sweater made out of their yarn, there's a QR code on the ticket, and you can click onto that, and it'll tell you from which farms that wool came. And this is a British wool promotion, <clears throat> and I think that's incredibly exciting because I think the consumer wants to have that knowledge. You know, they can they can bore their friends to tears at dinner saying, I knew this this wool came from a place in you know, on the Yorkshire Moors or something. And everyone's yawning and saying, Oh my god, he's on about it again. But um <laughs> You're describing me. <laughs> <I'm afraid. laughs> that's why we're talking. And me. <laughs> Yes. No, we're, we, yeah. we love your your um, your 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 whole image actually, and everything that you're doing with Well Dressed Dad, and I think it's it's terrific. It's it's the it's the direction we all want to be going in, and that respect for tradition and craft. I think it, you know our our children like that. You know, we, we, I think there's hope for us that, that that we're going back more towards that direction. After all these years of cheap, fast fashion and just buy, 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 do you think it's possible to sort of haul the young people back from the edge? Yes. Yes. I think you said, I think I'm right in saying you said at one point that you were a hopeless op optimist. Am I right? Or am I rooting you? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think we're optimists. Um, but yeah. there's also the thing about as Jamie has pointed out, perhaps not yet in this conversation. Um, <laughs> really? I didn't say everything. 
No, but how the world has accepted um, organic food or bio food, as you say here in France, and how textiles hopefully are just behind. We're going to get there when we understand why it's important. Yeah, I mean, I think I think <clears throat> that's incredibly important, and I think the textile industry is about twenty years behind the food industry, and uh, you know, our our four children all buy hundred percent organic food, and they, you know, we discuss this. It costs them thirty percent more, but they say that's how we want to live, and so that attitude, Nick, has to come into clothing, and so. The challenge to me is, can I persuade you? Well, no, no you're at easy, sorry. But <laughs> can, can we persuade, you know, your average Joe, and this is something we've worked on, we're working on a project in California that's very interesting, but um, can we persuade average Joe in San Francisco and say, look, we know that you bought three pairs of jeans this year from Levi's and they're made in Vietnam and they're 80 bucks each. What about this pair of jeans? I'm going to show you. It's 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 you know it's made out of California grown hemp. It's vegetable dyed. It's the jeans are made in Sonoma County, whatever, and they're three hundred bucks. So you know that's the challenge, and it's not an easy challenge. But you've got people in 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 England like Hyatt, isn't it Hyatt jeans, and doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I don't know about you when I when I clear out my closet, I find I've got sort of 80 pairs of trousers. That's completely ridiculous. So I'm probably one of the worst, you know. But I think if you can persuade people, and it has to start at the top end of the market, if you can persuade them to go that step, so saying, I'm going to buy these jeans because I know that they've been made locally. I know that I'm supporting the farming community. I know that I'm supporting local industry. And I'm polluting one hell of a lot yet less. You know, it's a pretty easy equation like that. But when it comes to money and people's budget, it's not easy. That's the challenge I see. Yeah, I mean, from my experience, there's a certain type of person who will be more easily swayed. Because if you're into eco-food, you'll probably be into more sustainable living, slow living, uh, quality not from a status viewpoint but i think the bigger challenge comes with people the sort of guy who thinks oh a 300 pound pair of gucci jeans yeah a nice big logo i'll take them yes but doesn't really care about anything else about them other than the fact that everyone will see that well yes he's got this pair of gucci or whatever jeans it's very challenging it's very challenging i when we were living in new york i had conversations with people there where you know because we're not unique in this respect, Nick. Everybody's talking about this. How can we sort out the industry, the world, the planet, the climate? So the conversation I remember having in New York was, how can we persuade? Because it's easy, you know, with privileged people like yourself and ourselves, we're all privileged, right? And you know, we can make these choices. I can go and buy a $300 pair of hemp jeans if I want to, because I, I can but I'd like to think about the lady in Texas who's got her kids going back to school and she's got to get clothes for them all and she's looking at acrylic sweaters that cost nineteen ninety nine in Walmart or whatever it is. And I, that's where I got to thinking that we in the industry 
have a responsibility to make it possible for that lady to buy wool? How can we do it? You know, and, and it comes down to money. I mean, but I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but I, I do know that it's not fair for that la- that lady to be held responsible because she she can't she can't cope with that. So w- w- what we've got is we've got a massive consumption of petrochemical fiber, and we've got a huge amount of wool that's not being used. I mean, it's completely bonkers. We, wool used to correspond to four or five percent of clothing market, the clothing market, and I think it's now one point four. You know, and and we're we're talking to people in California where they grow 2 million kilos of wool per year, and none of it's processed there. It's insanity. And then everybody, all of those big clothing companies like Patagonia, North Face, Levi's, they're all making like outerwear with petrochemical fiber. And they're sitting beside 2 million kilos of wool that's sold at a price that doesn't even cost cover the cost of shearing, and it goes to carpets and, 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 you know, mattress stuffing. stuffing. It's insane. I've I've been after Patagonia about this so many times now. (laughs) It is infuriating. But, and this is something that has been bugging me. You you probably know about this, Dan, but why are they making knitwear out of acrylics when there's all that, I, I mean, you could almost say free wool, but worthless wool. I mean, is Acrylics is petrochemicals is plastic no, so much cheaper. It's, it's n- not just that it's cheaper; it's that it can be thrown in the washing machine because everybody seems to believe we need to wash things after one wearing, and if you do that to wool, it shrinks, and they can't figure that out. Wool doesn't need to be washed; it shouldn't be washed. Just let it be. You can hang it out on the terrace, you know, on a hanger, and it'll just sort itself out. And I know for the local Highland PTA, when we were we lived for a while in the Highlands of Scotland, um, they asked me to design a knit jumper for the school, which I did, and went to the local spinner and got them to do a ve- sorry a special deal on. Um, on giving us the local wool spun for us at a great deal for the local school. And the parents said, no, sorry, uh uh-uh. We're not going to knit in wool for our children. We'll knit, but it's got to be acrylic because it has to go in the washing machine. So that's part of it. It's We've been brainwashed into thinking that the ease of cleaning and the, you know, no iron, no anything, no effort uh, is is more exciting than the power of natural fiber. So I think, I think there's a... So you're, sorry, go ahead. So you're saying that as consumers, we're actually getting what we've asked for. Yeah. Precisely. Well, what we've, we've been offered something and brainwashed into believing that it's what we want. In my opinion, so I think the net, <laughs> the net result is there's a huge need for education. Um, we're actually talking with people at the moment about possibly doing a a TV series, um, a bit in the style of Anthony Bourdain, who did it with food. We want to do it with textiles, and the mission there, Nick, would be, you know, we we. People need to make decisions which are the right decisions about how do I become a more responsible consumer in terms of clothing. 
But to make those decisions, they need to have information. They need to be educated. Uh, I don't mean to be sounding preachy, but you know, people literally do not understand that acrylic is petrochemical. They, do, they don't make that connection. I think a lot of information and knowledge has just been lost, and one needs to be constantly re-educating. And I think that there are a lot, there are enough thinking people out there who, if they're armed with the right information, will make different decisions. But we have to give them that information. And of course, textiles isn't just clothing. I mean, it's everything. It's, we're surrounded by it. It's in our cars. It's in, in, hanging in front of our windows. It's, we're sitting on it. We're walking across it. We make babies in it. <laughs> My favorite one. <laughs> you can edit that, Nick. <laughs> I'll leave it in. <laughs> so, so you're thinking of uh, of making a sort of kind of gomology on the road, a gomology yes. TV. Yes, that sounds great. We'll be I'm in. <laughs> we'll be in touch. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, giving people the information, and then I guess once that information is there in a understandable format, you have to make products that are clearly better, more desirable. There lies a challenge which I've not found any solution to yet. Sorry, can you explain what you mean? How do you, how do you make them more desirable? What do you, what do you mean? Well, if we sort of loop back to the old thing about buy once, buy better, yeah. um, stop buying so much shit. Many ways of phrasing it, but if you're in the shop, you're looking at something. Do you know that this is going to be the one? I mean, it's like going to a disco and trying to find a partner mm. how do you know which one is going to stick around for more than two days so you have to find something that well you're going to love for the for ages until it's worn out as a consumer that's really hard i mean it, you might be completely flummoxed by the beauty of something there and then and then you find out that it doesn't actually work no. and as a maker you have the same problem how do you make something that someone is going to really cherish it's it, it actually comes down to the textiles. I mean, sorry, as a maker, I've just started working as a consultant with a startup in England making um, activewear. Uh, active wear. Thank you, Diane. I mustn't say leisure wear. It's a very strange word. Um, activewear. And we've just, we just had a two-hour meeting yesterday discussing this very thing, which is, you know, if, if you want to stand out, you, you need to have beautiful textiles whatever that is if it's a pair of jogging pants or if it's a tweed jacket it's all about no compromise in the textiles and i think that's one of the hardest things in the industry is that whenever almost in any company i've ever worked with in our business inevitably at some point you get pressure from the merchandising people and the financial people to cut corners on the textiles they say why do you need this fabric, Nick, which costs £25 a yard from Harris Tweed? I can get it for, for you in Prato for 10 And then, oh, okay, over to you, Nick. Explain why you need the Harris Tweed one. And it's very hard to well, then, argue. I'd argue that very well. <laughs> because Harris Tweed, I mean, just bolting Harris Tweed onto your product doubles its actual value and you've got a, se a separate story to tell and it's a quality heritage product okay. so 
I think that's a no-brainer. I th- and I think the story is, is the key word in that. Because, I mean, I've been working the last three years for a company called Filson in, in Seattle, and that's everything that we do is about story. It's got to be a storyline. You know, so we went to Harry, we went to Lewis and spoke to Harris Tweed Hebrides and are working on special things there. And everything is special. I was in India last year doing hand block printing for shirts, uh, hand woven plaids for shirts, you know, so there's a story. So the guy in, in Seattle who buys this summer plaid shirt knows that it's been hand woven by somebody called, you know, Rajiv in Chennai. It's fabulous. It's just fabulous. So that kind of connection to the intimacy of the production of the product is, I think, the key to how we make it attractive, coming back to what you were saying. The the people who shop at the fast fashion emporiums completely disregard the story. Are they completely uninterested? Yes. Probably. But, I mean, that's not our target audience. I mean, you have to start somewhere, and it's not... Okay, so you have to start somewhere, but it should be the target audience because the whole point is that... It's it's the globe that needs to change. It's it's not just one segment of the globe that needs to change. If we're going to stop, <laughs> I have to keep pointing Diane at the microphone because she's talking to you. Because <laughs> you know she's very polite, so she's sort of. I, w- I wonder if it, would it be an idea to move the microphone a little bit? <laughs> no, it would be an idea to because Diane. <laughs> no, no, because I can see why she's looking this way. Yes, okay, not um, you, thank you, that was good. Because you're, you're such a handsome chap, you know, she didn't want us to miss anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but surely, it, um, it, okay. well, you do have to get to the bigger market if you're going to make a change. So, so we start with the low-hanging fruit, the people who are easy to sway. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You, you don't think that people are getting a bit... Uh, a bit wary, maybe a bit tired of the stories. There's there've been so many stories now. I mean, mm-hmm. some absolutely true and genuine, but storytelling has become a sort of marketing segment in itself. Mm-hmm. With of course it has. Either stories you just make up or other stories you buy. You buy an old company, you use the name. Yes, you you are right. I mean, <laughs> as Diane said, is the brand more important than the product? Well. I, I was um, I did some work for the Dutch government at one time, which is very odd. I've worked for the Dutch and Scottish governments, which is quite strange for someone like me. But we were at a conference in Amsterdam and talking about, you know, actually at that time trying to help people in third world countries develop their textile business internationally. And it just came, it suddenly became absolutely clear to me that, you know, in in the past, where if you say what are the top ten um, factors in making something successful in terms of textiles and clothing, design would have been up there right at the top. And I think now, coming to your point, Nick, is branding and storytelling has overtaken design to the extent where the people the people I'm working with on this new brand in, in England, they've got all of their branding and imagery and storytelling absolutely beautiful, but they don't have a product yet. So they're saying, oh, could you make a product for us? You know? It's like an afterthought. <laughs> it's crazy. Not exactly, because they do know what they want. So. They haven't done it. 
Well, they plan on it. Because we're we Dan and I are product people, so we make a product, and they say, and then we say, Christ, how can we sell this? You know, and we try to find a market, but we've made something that we love. So we're naive. <laughs> Is it hard to come up with with new project, uh, new products in a world that basically has seen everything a thousand times over? Not really. If you're sort of, if you if you have the disease that we have um it just never leaves you i've been at a few interviews in new york where i I didn't interview for many jobs but i did an interview with a few hr people in new york and (laughs) i remember they they would sort of end the interview with saying well we can see you're very passionate and they said it as if it was some sort of illness i had that could be cured you know if i went to see the doctor but um i think we're both passionate about product and so we still wake up at 4.35 in the morning crackling with ideas. It's just part of our being, which is wonderful, even if we don't make money. We don't, we don't often make money. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know you were in Paris last week, Jamie. Yeah. Looking at fabrics. Yes, I was. Now, now that there's been so much focus on uh, getting away from the the plastics i imagine paris was full of uh, natural fibers <laughs> well um i was staying in a hotel beside the pantheon uh, beside the sorbonne university i woke up one morning and looked at my wallpaper which actually wasn't wallpaper it was one of those textile wall coverings some sort of rococo jacquard that was um clearly synthetic then I looked around, the carpet was synthetic, the blanket on the bed was synthetic, the faux leather covering on the seat beside the you know, plastic table and the plastic television, that was plastic. So I, I thought, oh my God, I'm surrounded by petrochemicals. And then I went out, the first day I went to Tex World, which is, this Premier Vision is the sort of more elite European textile show, and then Tex World shows at the same time. And uh, I think they'd forgive me for saying that that's, that's more sort of mass market Asian production typically. And so I went and did a day in Tex World and it was just like walking through a sea of acrylic and polyester. I just had to get out of there. I could not stay in the building. And um, yeah, that's when you realize that in that in that show there were, I don't know, a thousand companies all making plastic and everybody's buying it. You know, it's like, it's nuts. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I, I can't get my head around how much oil was in the earth. When you, when you go to Calcutta or New York or Bombay or Tokyo or London and you see all those cars and trucks and buses and they're all using gas, gasoline, petrol, how much was there? It's, uh, how much is left? I mean, I don't know the figures, but it must be an insane amount. But that's what we're all using up. It just it's, it's sort of beggar's belief, really, that we can keep doing that. Now, you mentioned there's lots of synthetics there because that's what people want. Now, to be fair and give synthetic fibres the floor for a moment instead of just banging on all the time about <laughs> natural fibres, this and that. Are there any advantages to synthetics? I mean, 
is there any real can we make a case for it yes absolutely i mean there in terms of performance you know the, the yes you know you, you in terms of rainproof uh, you know it, yes you can make a case there's, i think i think to me there's a kind of um there's a kind of uh what would i say a qualitative um side to synthetics where nylon for example for me is much more acceptable than polyester because of its performance and because i don't know i mean it's it i think if you look at the polyester industry it's, it's really quite horrible um yes of course there are, there are certain aspects where petrochemical fibers perform something that natural fibers can't do so well but i think that all has to be re-examined in a sort of holistic way in terms of the environment i mean you know very well because you wear thornproofs and things when you're wearing a thornproof woolen fabric you can you can go out in the rain you know you might need to sort of hang it somewhere to stop smelling like a wet dog for a while but i mean you know it's it's it works do you really need to be wearing a, a nylon waterproof what do you wear as a waterproof nick I have a few, but I would wear some form of waxed cotton normally. I do have some uh, more sort of synthetic. Uh, well, I have a Norwegian rain jacket, which is a technical Japanese uh, polyester fabric, which I think doesn't work as well as waxed cotton. Um, and I probably have some Gore-Tex somewhere, but... I got into a bit of a muddle with Gore-Tex because I was thinking that maybe I could buy some old Gore-Tex yes. and not have a new one. And then I started looking at the, the microplastics issue and found that, well, old plastic um, garments shed more master microplastics than new ones. So what do you really do then? Do you go out and buy a new one or an old one? Or, so I gave up on Gore-Tex. It's tricky. I mean, I think, you know... I. I have to confess to you, I the, the the garment that I wear most in the world is actually a North Face kind of. Is it a? It's not a fleece exactly, is it? But it's it's a you know it's it's a, it's a synthetic, and I wear it for gardening the whole time. I wear whenever I'm chopping down trees or something. I'm I'm wearing this zip up, you know, multi-purpose garment. So I think. The message that we'd like to put out to people is like, you know, you don't have to not ever buy a fleece. Just don't buy 20. You know, if you're, if you educate yourself, then you know that, you know, polar fleece is not actually very good for the environment, but maybe you need to have two. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's actually quite a practical garment. But the other thing that I would say to you on that score is we, we met with a very, very interesting guy in California called John Wick. Not the movie John Wick, but his name is John Wick. His wife is a very famous uh, writer of children's books. And John had bought a ranch, and he was doing a lot of sort of experiments on composting and soil management, right? So where you're, ideally your, your vegetable matter in the soil should be about 14 15%. When he bought his ranch, it was 1.5%. So this is the whole, one of the major issues in the world is soil management 
And we were talking with John about, you know, the whole clothing business and how do we change things. And he said something which stuck with us very much. He said, the only way you can change things is by legislation. So my point would be, if if we legislated, let's just say we've got a magic wand and we said, you know what, guys, we can't wear petrochemical fibers anymore. Done. We'd manage. Of course we'd manage. We'd get waxed cotton. We'd get boiled wool. Before plastic existed, we all, you know, people were living and going out in the rain. <laughs> so the simple answer to your question is, yes, petrochemical fibers perform in a way that natural fibers can't necessarily match. But what's more important? Mm-hmm. Having a 100% waterproof garment or having a, a planet that's not dying? <laughs> if that's your choice. I guess the arguments for having uh, 3D knitted um, sports where stuff is so compelling that people won't go back to a wool shirt. Might not go back to a wool shirt, but certainly can be wearing wool if you're wearing three-dimensional knit. Mm-hmm. Because things are happening in the knitting industry with 3D knitting and so forth. When you Can you 3D, tell you, us you about mean, that? You mean Dan? seamless? Yeah. Shimaseki garments, yeah. Yeah. It's huge. I was thinking Diane could uh, could expand on the idea. Um, no, it's, it's not uh, machine knitting. It's not my forte. But I agree completely. Once you start wearing knitted garments, it's very difficult to put a shirt back on. And that is a way forward, yeah. But I... Well, oh, sorry, I know you were trying to give it to Diane, so I apologize in advance, but I did just visit about 10 different knitting companies in the UK, and the seamless garment discussion is very a very active discussion, because be. the Shima Seiki machines and the, uh, what are the other ones called? <clears throat> I can't think. Um the seamless garments, there are two obvious benefits. One is that it's a comfortable garment. And the second thing is that you don't need such a skilled work workforce because you don't have to have people doing linking. So if you're doing fully fashioned knitwear, you know, you're knitting the panels shaped and then you have a linking process to link them all together. And the seamless garments, you just sort of program it and you know put the yarn in and the garment pops out. So there were certain technical issues with the neck and so on where they... They, they can't do everything with it, but they can pretty much do everything. I mean, they, they can make an Aran sweater for you on a, on a seamless machine, you know. So I, th- I think it's huge, absolutely huge. And especially in terms of a lot of companies today have a big problem with finding skilled workforce. So that's a double win for them. It's more productive it's comfortable because there's no seams and you don't need so many skilled people. So it's, it's kind of, that does seem to be, that that does seem to be the big problem in bringing um, garment manufacture back from the low cost countries that you can't find the people to do it. Totally. And I think that the textiles had, has had a bad reputation in the Western world. You know, the, the dark satanic mills, you know, the image of, the dark sort of grimy places where you it's all rather depressing um i was actually general manager of a mill in pennsylvania the woolrich mill and that had not 
had any investment for 50 years and it was like a dark satanic mill and what our plan was which unfortunately came to nothing because the owners sold it to an investment company that wasn't interested the mill which had been there since 1830 i was there to manage a reinvestment in it and we we looked very seriously at making a, a new mini mill <clears throat> and our mission there was to say let's make it light and bright and clean and have good facilities you know and make make textiles sexy sexy again for workers i mean make it a a place that you want to work at the at the Woolrich mill we were competing with two other factories locally one which made adult diapers and the other one which processed marijuana so that was our competition <laughs> uh, for yeah for late <laughs> quite funny yeah that's strange that Woolrich should close down doesn't that mean they've kind of spoilt their story now totally Nick if you go into a Woolrich store <clears throat> in Tokyo or London or Milan they've got it written up in big letters on the wall we cher we cherish our textile craft heritage in Pennsylvania if you look at the label it's got a picture of them you know a little image of the mill which has been there since 1830 I said to them, you're making a huge mistake strategically. Just when we're talking about onshoring textiles as opposed to offshoring it, you're closing a heritage mill. You must be crazy. You know, you talk about having a story to tell. That was a wonderful story. The, the only problem was the average age of the workforce was about 73. I was a youngster and all the machines were like falling apart. Mm -hmm. So textiles entre parenthèses, as they say, it's a very high investment industry and a low margin industry. So in the textile industry, you have to replace your machinery on a regular basis, you know, so you should be replacing 10% of your machines every year, right? So that in 10 years, you've completely renewed it. And if you do what Woolrich did, which you don't spend any money for 50 years, instead of needing to spend one or 2 million, you have to spend 50 million. And that, that was the problem that they had you have to have an ongoing active investment program it's very important even the importance of a story like that damn it what was i going to say i kind of interrupted myself there <laughs> <laughs> that's quite an oh yeah <laughs> given the importance of stories like this um, and clearly they are important because they, customers care about them. Whether they do or not, I don't know, but the brands at least think that the customers care about them. Do they then think that customers are so dumb that they don't realise that the story is false, that the, the company really has sold out to low-cost production uh, and that's something, are lying? That's something that sort of bothers me, and I think the sad fact is that they don't. They don't pay attention. They say this is a heritage brand. Look at the label. It's got an old mill on it. That's all That's all they see. And listen, I've got a jacket from Woolrich with the label on it, with the picture of the mill that Diane and I, we lived right opposite the mill. And um, that jacket that I have, it's made of cotton. I think the cotton's from China. And the jacket's made in Vietnam. And it's got this label on it of a mill in Pennsylvania. Go figure. You know, that's your heritage, mate. But... <laughs> the investment they were talking about doing, it, creating a mini mill, 
is a potential way forward for textiles in the world if we can figure out how to have mini mills or mini production units, many of them in local areas. Um, it's, it's not something that's sorted out yet, partly because, as Jamie said, the investment is so huge, but it's a question of, is it possible to cooperate um, on the big investments and localize on whatever can be localized? Can we make mini mills in California that can produce enough for the local community? Can we make another one in the state next door, in the country next door? Can those things happen with a community, global community backing? Yeah, that was the idea that we have been working for the last four or five years in California on this idea. It's 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 a, a slow, painstaking process, but the idea that Diane's describing is <clears throat> a, a sort of mini vertical textile mill that could be, you know, replicable and maybe scalable in different situations. So if you if you look at, let's talk about you know Argentina. You've got three big sheep farms, right? Well, maybe together those neighbors could install a mini mill. That was that's our idea: is could you actually really regionalize textiles so that it becomes more local again? Which I think would be terrific. What, uh, this is what Fibershed are trying yeah. to do. <laughs> We've been working with them, yeah. Right, because if you saw today's podcast. Was about five percent. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> no, we didn't. But that is interesting because you're bringing back some of the processes that have been lost. I mean, I find it infuriating that you can't cut the fleece off sheep in Norway, say, and have the wool scoured and spun all in Norway because the processes are, are gone. So the wool has to travel a long, long way just to get cleaned up and then come back and be dyed mm. and spun and whatever. Totally. But if, so, if some of these processes could come back even in a smaller format. The biggest trick is the scouring, the wool scouring, because, you know, you've got to do the wool clipping, sorting, and scour. the scour is a big investment. And so you kind of need a centralized scouring unit that, that other small companies can, can use. But one of the people that you should speak to is our friend Siggy. Have you spoken to Siggy, who runs the spinning company in Iceland? He should be on your podcast, Nick. Because they have like, I think, 500,000 sheep on Iceland, and Siggy processes all of it. It's a company called Istex. And um, we've been talking to Siggy about could he help us in California with setting up the scourer and so on, because... You need you need to bring in people who are experts in each field, you know, to make that happen. So we've actually introduced Siggy yeah. Fibershed, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And scouring is also something that has been developed in recent times, I think, to make it more environmentally friendly. Yeah. Because it's yeah. kind of a nasty process. It's nasty, yes. Mm. Yeah. And the worst. And once is you realise what scouring is about, you realise why it's a nasty <laughs> process. Yeah. Get rid of the shit, basically. But um, one of the nastiest ones traditionally was carbonizing, which is, you know, when you're getting rid of the vegetable matter, um, 
it's it's pretty horrible, you know, heating process with some pretty nasty chemicals. Chemical burning. And you actually damage the wool as well. So, yeah, that's one of the big things is how do you get vegetable matter out of the wool in an ecologically friendly way, which, as you say, that that's being worked on as we speak, sort of. It's a big is that not always a 100% thing, is it? Because I often find in, in, say, Harris Tweed, you find a little twig here and there. <laughs> <laughs> we just did a hand-woven heritage blanket for Filson, hand-woven in California, and we made a big thing of the vegetable matter. Now, what was the great quote, Diane? Um, well, the sheep are carrying it for you. This um, product carries part of the land. The land, yeah. yes. The product carries the land with it. That's a great way of saying this shit that's in here is there for a reason, man. You know, it's good, good for you. Makes you feel good. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it basically means that it hasn't had so much cleaning process that everything has been bleached from it. Yes. Count your blessings and you sit there and, you know, de-thistle it. <laughs> uh, am I mistaken? It wasn't Filson also in the process of moving all the making offshore yes they still do core items in seattle they do some bags there they do their heavy woolen fabric which is called the mackinaw they still make those jackets in the states and they make some sweaters and actually just starting to make some shirts there as well so I, and I, i've been pushing very hard for them to you know make more in the states it's quite funny because if you go into the Filson shop, the WP shop in Florence, in Italy, as I did, and I asked the manager, I said, do the people care if the label said made in the USA? And he said, yeah, they do. They absolutely, that's what they want. They don't want made in Bangladesh or made in Sri Lanka or made in, you know, wherever it is, Tunisia. They weren't made in the USA. That's that's the label they want to see. These are people in Italy, you know. So <laughs> I think everything's a little bit back to front. And I think some people, the offshoring really took hold in the States in the 90s. And I think, I, I actually, I still believe that that could be reversed to a certain extent. But it's a hard and expensive process to do that. But, you know, COVID make, made people wake up because people say, you know, the government said, oh, make five million masks. Who, where do we get the textiles? And they said, well, China. <laughs> Hello. Oh, what about if we're not talking to China? <laughs> Strategically, America shot itself in the foot with its textile industry. Because the army, for example, is legally obliged to buy American fabric. Burlington just moved their, they just closed their last woolen weaving operation in the Carolinas. And now they're making in Mexico. But legally, the, the, the army has to go and ask for a special disposition to buy something that's not made in the States. It's pretty crazy. It seems to me that one of the things we, one of the things that aren't considered is how much our garments and the components of them travel all around the world. You were talking about making things locally where things actually don't have to travel too far. But some of our clothes, they must be globetrotters these days. <laughs> well, there was one example. My 
my friends who make uh, waxed fabrics in Britain, not to name names, I saw them. It could only be one of two. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those two. Uh, no, we had a friendly conversation about this. I said, what, what's up with you? And he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to California. I said, what are you doing there? He said, I'm looking at the Pima cotton harvest. I said, oh, that's interesting. So you're buying Pima cotton in California. Yeah. And and where are you? I said to him, slightly provocatively, you know, where are you going to spin and weave that? And he said, well, probably Bangladesh. And, so, and then I said, well, where are you going to do the waxed finish? He said, well, in the UK. <laughs> so, <laughs> Nick, this is a fiber bought in California, shipped to Bangladesh, spun and woven, shipped to the UK, waxed, then probably sold to Ralph Lauren, who's making in the Philippines. So it's going to be sent to the Philippines, and then the garments will be sent to New York. H how can you possibly make sense of that? And this is happening all the time. You know, typically American companies will, or British as well, of course, will buy fabrics in Europe, in Turkey, Italy, France, UK, ship them to the Far East, make garments, ship them back. And the thing is, we're, we're counting the dollars and cents of that cost, but we're not counting the environmental cost. We're, we're, that's starting to happen now. And as that happens, I think there's a more of a window of opportunity for reshoring production. As wage, wage levels go up in the Far East, and as shipping costs go up and environmental costs go up, you know, you start to get to a point where actually it, it could tip the balance and people could say, hey, why don't we just make it here? You know, <laughs> Save a lot of trouble. Because yeah, if things were to continue as they are right now, where production keeps moving to the next place that has a lower cost than your current place, sooner or later you're going to run out of places you can move production to. And yeah. what happens then? I, I don't know. I mean, I think... Well, we have I, to backpedal. I think we have to backpedal, yeah. Um, you know, we were having a conversation with a house guest this morning over breakfast, and she had difficulty understanding how something that comes from so far away costs so much less than something that's made locally. And I understand why. I understand the volume. Um, if you're making in huge volumes, your price per garment goes down. If you're making in small volumes, your price per garment is much higher. If your wages are higher, the you know, there's a point, a tipping point on the balance that doesn't make sense to the purchasing person. To the they, mm -hmm. why would they have to pay more for something made locally? It should be cheaper, and they don't get the the implications of the volume. And that's maybe one thing that we need to be communicating, why small runs, because you only have equipment for small runs, are more expensive. Mm -hmm. Well, personally, I get, I, it, one thing that makes me completely insane is when I see, a, you know, a t-shirt for less than three euros. How can that possibly be? How can that exist? But you know why it exists, because it's made by somebody in Bangladesh who's 12 and a half years old and probably working in horrible conditions. And, and we're, not, we're not properly costing 
the shipping because how could it be three 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 euros? You know, retail. If I'm retailing at three euros, I must be buying it at one thirty or something. I don't know what, what exactly. So how can that make any sense? It's appalling. There is. It's, it's maths that's impossible to walk back because you pass zero. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, when, when, when we're talking about local production and the cost of making things locally, uh, we get into the fact that we actually have to pay our local people and they have to have decent working conditions and benefits. And just like the people buying their clothes locally... And I wonder if that makes it easier to understand. If someone who lives next door is actually making clothes, do you then realise that this person actually has to have a salary similar to your own? I, I think that's hugely important. It's part of the localisation um, scenario, which, by the way, you know, is what we talked to Fibershed about, is, is the whole thing about if you know that the hemp in your genes is grown by, you know, Judy Bloom along the road or whatever her name is or Johnny Smith um, it makes a huge difference because yeah you, you, you know that you're supporting that farm I think it's massive and you know you might run into that person in the supermarket and that person has every much right as you do to earn a proper living I think that's very important <laughs> Now, I was just I was just thinking how yes uh, Judy Bloom along the road grows <laughs> hemp and has made part of your your genes yes uh, I mean that should be very important and a, a communal sense of you know where it comes from uh, but then you at the same time you have these garments that sort of just come into existence somewhere that's totally abstract but with a with a fancy label on it and people are so taken in by this label that they don't sort of disregard everything. And that's some psychology there that just I just can't get my head around. No, but we're, we're the same about, about it, it with regards to everything, out of sight, out of mind. Um, you know, the journalistic thing about three dead Americans are worth 15 dead South Americans are worth 40 dead Africans. You know, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but if if it doesn't touch us, it doesn't touch us. I I know, Nick, I read some of your words recently, which I share 100%, um, which was, I think you said something about, I try very hard to understand fashion, and I just can't. And um, I've worked all these years in the fashion industry. I hate fashion. I think it's stupid. I think there's a lot of, no, I don't hate all of it. Sorry. Blanket statement. I you detest some. <laughs> I detest some of it. And you know, one of the things that I absolutely have always had a big problem with is, um, you know, the trend services. So some, a lot of companies employ trend services, you know, like people like Nairobi yeah. or like, uh, you know, um, what's her name? Uh, the Belgian lady. Um, and, you know, they're all very, very good people and so on. But to my mind, if if and there have been certain seasons where, for example, all of the Italian mills decided to do X, whatever X was. Let's say it's light mauve, or you know, what, what, a color, or it's a technique. And to me, it's like a death knell if everybody does the same damn thing. 
you know you have to have a voice you have to you have to make something and if i if i create a textile today it's because of all the information that i've imbibed you know like taken in from the environment from movies from people in the street from diana talking i don't need someone to tell me you know which direction i should go in that would be anathema to me so that in a sense is fashion i mean you've got to if you if you if you're extant let's say if you are alive and thinking and you're a creative person then what you will create something for your times by by definition but you have to you have to have your own voice not follow a trend and it's one of my one of my least favorite questions at dinner parties is when somebody says oh you work in the textile business tell me i've always wondered who is it that creates the trends i mean that was my next question <laughs> i mean who does know what jeans are going to look like in 3 years time <laughs> nobody thank god <laughs> No, there isn't a secret cabal of no. jeans uh, manufacturers. It's, uh, everybody's fumbling along in the dark, and some people are a bit more full of bullshit than others, and they are probably the trendsetters. You know, the ones who actually say, "I actually don't care what all those people are saying. I'm going to do this." I worked for a while with an old friend of mine called Francois Girbeau. I don't know if you know his company is Maritien Francois Girbeau, and he is a genius garment engineer you know so he is a genuine creator of new things he was basically i think one of the first people who put stretch into jeans you know but he he will engineer especially trousers in a way that's quite extraordinary so i mean i take my hat off to people like that who are he's not a trendy fashion person he's a an engineer i mean he and i used to talk a lot about his dream which was his dream was to have a factory where you sort of pour fiber in at one end and a garment comes out at the other without any cutting and sewing or anything. So we actually worked on trying to create fab a garment in the loom, basically, so that you take it off the loom, finish it, and maybe stitch one seam and you've got a garment. So it's a bit like seamless knitwear, but he wanted to do that in woven fabric. So that that's what I, that those are the people that interest me people who are actually genuinely creating. So a step away is the factory that doesn't have the the genuine in it. It's a set of machines that need to be operated and function in the most economically viable way input and output and somewhere in there that's where you're missing the love or the genius um, that actually cares about the product and not just whether the machines are putting out the right amount of product per minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. It strikes me that there's so much, or so many garments made these days that really have little effort put into them at all. We have simplified it down so they're cheaper to make and we found cheaper fabrics and trims to make them cheaper to make. But the actual value of the garment itself, both well, in money and in wear, has become much less. Agreed, agreed. Um, I think if we think too much about that, we'll get depressed. But I think there's a, 
there's enough going on that's the an antidote to that, Nick. I was in Donegal and I saw a lady called Rosaline who's got a company called Crana Knits in Buncrana. Rosaline is 87. She's got 30 people all around Ireland knitting for her. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, she did a few hundred sweaters for Rag and Bone, this company in New York. She's still completely fired up by her craft. She doesn't even pay herself. She just loves doing it. You know, so that's the antidote, if you like. That's the <laughs> that's the, yeah. the opposite yeah. of what you just described. And I, I have to, we believe that that will survive um, in some form or other. I stayed in a hotel in New Lanark. It was quite ironic, really, because the New Lanark Mill is this whopping great mill in a valley sort of southeast of Glasgow, and it's it was a cotton mill. It's now a sort of heritage center and a hotel, and there's a little tiny woolen spinning company there. <clears throat> and I was talking to the guy behind the bar, of course, happened to be in the bar, and um, this young man, we got talking about textiles, and he said, Oh yeah, lots of my friends are into crochet, and I'm like, "What? You know, this is kind of this dude, right? <laughs> this cool dude who wants to manage hotels in Switzerland or something." And we're talking about crochet, and that that gives me hope. You know, it really does because yeah. the people people are drawn to textiles; they're drawn to craft. We have to somehow encourage that. That's that's a big thing. I, I keep thinking I should learn to knit. But, me, me um, too. Me too. You should. It's not. Too it's late. really hard. It's not too late. <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs> um, I'm going to get into something really controversial now. Oh, great! And that's slow fashion. I don't know if you've seen the internet thing now about Werner Her Herzog's uh, sad beige kids' clothing or toys. No. It's an American woman. It's it's totally genius. She does these internet reels with uh, with this Germanic voice about these sad beige things, <laughs> and that's kind of where I see a problem with slow fashion. Go on. Slow fashion is just like kind of old fashion in that it is a fashion, and all the stuff is just a bit sad beige, <laughs> boxy, and yes. not very sexy. <laughs> mm. Still is a bit of that, yes. I tell you what I like is, um, you know, Margaret Howell and that sort of, sorry, it is, it's, there's a segue in there somewhere, um, you know, post-war utilitarian style, which I'm sure you subscribe to. Margaret Howell sort of epitomizes that to me, which is, you know, a sort of slightly masculine femininity and practicality, pragmatism, Um I'm not quite sure if I've... Have you picked up on the beigeness of slow fashion? I don't know if I have. Of course you have. It's, have I? It's <laughs> the sackcloth look. Oh, God, yes. Oh, yes, okay, so anti-fashion. <sighs> I don't know. I just avoid fashions, to be honest. <laughs> it's a bit like we, we avoid anything that's a big fad. Like, I, I've never seen Star Wars. I've never seen... Space Odyssey. I've never. We've no. You know, there are all these things. Uh, Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, everything that people go nuts about. We sort of avoid. I think we must be some sort of 
inverted sad old man esoteric snobs well yeah we should probably be wearing beige actually we're, we're getting there you know <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't deny yourself everything that is popular some of it is actually okay of course <laughs> i see i tell it against myself i have read all the harry potter books <laughs> oh all right okay good well we've covered that then that's good but now, yeah of course so of in- course nick if you're if you are because you love craft does not mean that you have all of the skills to make something that is um, perfect in everybody's sense of perfect. It's easier to have a simple shape because you can manage that. It's easier to dye a nondescript color because, or to not dye it and, and not have vibrancy. It's just, it depends on how slow you want your fashion to be. Because to do all of the processes is very slow if you're doing it one by one. Yeah. You don't have to be one person doing it all, though, do you? No. You can be, because most of the slow fashion makers don't actually make their own fabrics. They will buy the fabrics from the usual suppliers and so forth. Although I will grant most slow fashion makers that they do seem more concerned about what they make. They will be more transparent and willing to share all the details and clearly make more of an effort to source good organic fabrics, say. Which the large companies say, oh, but we can't do that. We can't be transparent about our supply chain. We can't do anything like that. It's just too much of an effort, even though you have thousands and thousands of people working for you. I think I'm going to have to research slow fashion. I feel a little bit left out. I probably knew it, but without labeling it. I think probably okay. Margaret Howell would, would be one of the early slower fashion ones. Who's that? But before it was called slow fashion. Who, who did you mention? I'd say Margaret Howell oh, yes. probably could be determined as slow fashion, yeah. but really she was working long before it became a thing. Or somebody like... It was just expensive... Expensive fashion before. <laughs> in America. Eileen Fisher? Eileen Fisher, yes. I mean, Eileen Fisher, I'd say, yes, could be a sort of precursor of slow fashion. As someone who was doing organic fabrics before anybody even knew, knew what that meant. Do you know Eileen Fisher, women's wear brand in New York? Wonderful, wonderful person, wonderful philosophy. Uh, she was way ahead of her time. She's been doing that for 40 years, you know. Mm-hmm. and uh, using sustainable organic fabrics and making a real point of it, which is what I've been trying to say to this new brand that I'm working with in England, where I think it's an opportunity to be, you know, as pure as possible from the start. If you're starting with a clean slate, you could, you know, in today's world, you could say, okay, we're not going to compromise at all. We have a son who had a, a company which he sold, which is called Motion Nutrition, making protein supplements. Because he was an international swimmer, and he thought protein supplements were full of crap, so why don't I make organic ones, which he did. And everything in his product line is 100% organic. You know, And, and the packaging 
is recyclable and it's vegetable ink printing. And so my point about that is, if you can say that's part of my company philosophy to be totally organic, then you don't have to check every label. You know that that company only does the good stuff, you know. So that that's kind of what we're trying to look at with this new brand in England, is how can we make that be the light motif of the company? <laughs> Which, if you look at Patagonia and what they're doing yeah. and how everyone is so taken in. I know. It's so hilarious that you mention them because Patagonia, if you've seen on their website, they did a very, very good video story about hemp. I don't know if you've seen that, but I, no, I'm I watching it you know, stay from, away. A, from the point of view of somebody in the industry. And I'm, I love, we love hemp. We love linen. We're crazy about linen and everybody should have linen sheets. And we think the Americans are nuts because they don't like the creasing. And it's crazy because there's nothing sexier than linen sheets for a start and, and wearing it. So Patagonia does this wonderful, you know, beautiful movie about hemp. And I'm watching it. I'm saying, when are they going to show us where it's grown <laughs> and where it's processed? And of course, it's it's probably from China. And if you're if you work in the linen and hemp business in Europe, you know that one of the problems with hemp so far has been that it's the 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 the, the most available source is China. But we don't know what chemicals they're using for the retting, and you know for for breaking up the fiber prior to spinning. And we think it's probably very nasty sort of bleaches and things, but we don't really know. So it's that's why you know Patagonia does a wonderful story on hemp and how fabulous it is for the planet and for all of us. But they don't actually show you where the damn stuff's grown and processed. They might show it weaving, but not the not the processing and spinning. So, I have wondered about that a couple of times in recent years because. Um, there was this thing with organic cotton. It didn't exist, really. And then suddenly it was everywhere. It was a big... And the same with linen. Nobody wanted linen until suddenly linen was a massive thing. And there was, there was just endless amounts of it. Yes, yes. It's very interesting. But if you look into linen, I mean, compared to cotton, it uses like 10% as much water. Um, it leaves the ground 30% richer with the nitrogen that it leaves behind. So... When you're rotating crops, the, the crop which follows linen has a very good yield. You know, there's a lot of things about linen that are fascinating. And uh, to me, we should all be wearing linen and we should all be wearing wool. And then the world would be a lot better place. <laughs> it's not that complicated. I was also shocked to see uh, an article about where these numbers for organic cotton came from. Because there's been all this talk about it only uses what five ten percent as much water as regular cotton and so forth, and it turned out that all these numbers were actually complete bullshit from a research thing that was looking at something entirely different, <laughs> and the numbers had just been well, massively used I in know, error. I know, and and you know they they have this label for organic cotton, and a few years ago in in New York somebody was trying to sell me. There was a load of organic cotton, like, you know, 10 tons or something, and it was like a hot potato. Nobody would touch it because it was meant to be organic, and then it was kind of, like, discredited, and it was discovered that this wasn't really organic, and nobody would buy it. It's just sort of like, like this sort of leper in the textile business. Uh, but, yes, the, the whole organic labeling of cotton has been problematic. 
And that's where, you know, we're coming back to the food industry where the organic, you remember 20 years ago, all of those organic labels, we didn't know which way to turn. Is this bullshit or is this true or whatever? And the whole thing has been sort of standardized to a large extent. And we now feel more confident about what, what we're buying. And that's what has to happen in the textile business. But we're just way behind. And there's all sorts of different labels like Blue Dot or Gat or Got or whatever. And I can't even tell you what they are, never mind the consumer. So we need to get standardization and, and legislation to sort that out. Whenever I look at the websites of these places, the sort of certification places like that, it always strikes me that these are companies very much geared towards making makers look better and not really doing much for the consumers. Yeah, it's greenwashing. There's a lot of that going on. A lot of it. Now, you did mention the S word a few minutes ago, and I thought I'd give you both some minutes to talk about the S word. Sustainability. Yes. Ah, okay. No, you go for that. Oh, come on. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, obviously, sustainability is the sexy word, isn't it, of today? And um, I, th I think it's interesting to say what does it mean. And one of the big debates to me is, is recycling sustainable or not? I mean, if, if you're recycling Coke bottles into a yarn with which you make a sweater, does that mean everyone has to feel good? Or maybe you just shouldn't make Coke bottles? You know what I mean? It's like, I'd, I'd, what, what defines sustainable practice? I mean, sustainable is to me is if you're making paper and you're replacing all the trees that you're pulping. So, you know, that's sustainable. I, I, I find it hard to get recycling sorted out in my mind. Yes, it's better to use those plastic Coke bottles to make something, but I don't think that's the same validity as a properly sustainable crop. An interesting example, though, because there have been so many cases now where they've not been using unusable Coke bottles to make, say, plastic fleece from. They've been using brand new bottles mm -hmm. because they give such much better fleece. You so, I didn't know that. But it's not surprising. It's, it's you true. Only recycle plastic. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean very bottles that have never had Coke in them? They'll buy brand new bottles and then make that into fleece. You are kidding me. But now, if they were using worn out plastic bottles that couldn't be used <laughs> for beverages again, now that would be one thing. That is hilarious. It's an end of life product, but yeah. they're using brand new ones because then they can say, oh, they've been uh, recycling bottles into plastic fleece. It's brilliant. No, I mean, to me, that's utter bullshit. So... But then so much of sustainability is. I mean, you can say to your sportswear company now that, uh, I mean, leisure wear, uh, athletic wear, whatever, you can say making 10,000 new T-shirts isn't sustainable. There's no way you can make it sustainable. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Fibershed, we talked about Fibershed. I mean, Rebecca came up with, uh, Rebecca Burgess came up with a great name. I think she did which is Climate Beneficial Wool, which I think is a fabulous label. Um, and if you think of the sheep and the fact that you have to shear the sheep every year, yeah. that's a very sustainable business, right? I mean, <laughs> you can't get much more sustainable. So 
No, I mean, sheep are a brilliant uh, idea. I mean, you can eat them and you can be clothed with them. Yeah. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, that probably has to be the most sustainable combination we can think of. A a crop of linens pretty sustainable. They even reproduce. Yeah, 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 they're handy. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it does disturb me, though, that sustainability... It just pops up everywhere, and it's so misused. You just insert it in your marketing blurb, and you sort of think, "Yep, we're good to go." What disturb- and it's become totally meaningless. Yeah, what disturbs yeah. me is that when you get something that starts out with the best intentions and becomes another trend, you know, so tr- sustainability is trendy right now. So maybe, you know, next year maybe Gucci will decide that plastic is the best thing in the world, which they probably think. I mean, apart from leather. You know, but you know, then 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 the next trend will be oh no, to hell with sustainability. We want to you know make clothes out of petrochemicals because it's just the sexiest. You know, so I think that's why trends in in themselves I think are dangerous really, and you don't want a serious movement to become trendy. But isn't it all then just back to education, wanting to learn about? Yeah. <sighs> what is the best for your for you for your family for the world or not caring enough to bother to learn it and sorry getting really negative but you guys are leading me down this path but if if governments put less and less money into education then we don't exercise our brains to get around the fact that we should think for ourselves and not just follow trends. Yeah, that's getting political. Sorry. I think, I think that I think the kids today are wising up to it. Hope so. Yes. The the the, the younger generation, the really young ones, and say up to mid-teens, mm-hmm. they are a lot smarter on this. And I don't know if TikTok has anything to offer in that respect, but they, I mean, they are sort of grasping the idea that we need to take a bit care of the planet and stuff but there's a huge segment in between there who doesn't give a toss they just keep keep on no, but it, it is changing i think there's hope in that young generation i agree and i think greta thunberg or whatever whatever her name is has been a got bit i've got it right uh has been a big influence in that you know somebody of her age making such a strong statement internationally i think it's absolutely fabulous and then there is also the fact that um, a lot of the stuff that we fell for, the, artif- the artificial fabric, um, artificial colorings, all, all of this industrial stuff that really did improve lives and change lives, we didn't know it was going to be wrong. We didn't know the end result. We appreciated the excitement of it. And... So perhaps it's about new things have to have, we have to have a way of thinking through the ultimate end result of what we're doing. That is a very, very good point. And uh, I see even today we are far too willing to take on new things with no real idea of the consequences. Yeah, I think I'm sure when DuPont were making nylon stockings, they never realised what what they were setting in motion. Mm, yeah, exactly. 
Yes, as Diane says, it was done with the best intentions. But I think we, we, in every sense, we have to have a sort of holistic approach to the strategies that we adopt. So, for example, if Amazon says they're buying 120,000 electric delivery vehicles, we all say, oh, well, well done, Amazon, that's wonderful. But wait a minute, is that are they being powered by... Uh, you know, fracked coal from Pennsylvania with Trump's friends? I mean, how are they generating that power? So, you know, what you can't just cherry pick. You have to sort of say, what, what's the whole picture here? Uh, you know, as, as Diane says, of course, and as you say, DuPont couldn't have realized what they were starting. They thought that was the best thing in the world, giving people nylon stockings. Uh, you know, it, it was. Uh, but hopefully we learn a bit as we go along. Yeah. And this is where the problem really comes in, because if someone asks me, well, how can I do better? And there's, there's not really an easy answer, because the, the whole thing, I mean, it really is a global, all-encompassing issue. So you start talking about environment, about the ocean, about jobs, about, I mean, it's just everything. Of course, the fact that we have four cars. I don't tend to say that very much, but... Uh... Well, I only drive one at a time, that's for sure. But I went to a <laughs> I went to a talk once in New York, Nick, by, at NYU, and it was a there was a guy from a research uh, company in in Boston, and they're they're looking at sort of toxicology and things like that. And this guy was he started talking. I thought he was going to be very boring, and he actually ended up being extremely interesting. And his mission in life was to get all universities with people studying chemistry to have to toxicology courses built in. So his point was, if you study chemistry and you come out of university with your fancy degree and you become a molecular engineer, let's say, off you go creating things left, right and center and then you suddenly realize, oh, this is giving children cancer or something. And then everybody has to backpedal furiously and work out what the, how the hell to fix this. But if you have that information at the start, and I went and talked to him afterwards, I said, I'd like to develop product with you. Because, you know, then, you, not that textiles is such a big issue on that score, but with the synthetics, yes. But, you know, if we have to have, we have to adopt that approach from the very start when you're creating a product, not, not catching up afterwards and trying to repair the damage. I thought it was a huge lesson in, in how we approach things. Now, a huge lesson. 43 years in the industry, and you have distilled all your ideas, everything you've learnt, all your best ideas, into a single product. Yes, sir. <laughs> Tell me about Olaf McTarn. Diane. Uh, okay, so we made the Olaf. And... Um, it is a garment that's like a jacket for your bottom half. And it's very simple. We, we sourced wool from within a day's drive of us. We had it boiled, but not deeply like a loden. It's like an al dente version of a boiled fabric. It's, it's not completely felted up, but it's felted enough so that this thing that you wrap around your bottom half isn't going to get saggy and baggy. 
it's going to hold its shape. You wrap it around your bottom half and it keeps your core warm when you're when you're sitting at a computer, when you're um, concentrating in a conversation, when you're out having coffee. You're out at the market buying your fruit and vegetables in the winter. We had a guy visit us from New York and uh, I'd been telling him this, the Olaf was for you know people sitting at home at their computer and so on. And he tried it on and he said to me, why, why are you talking about being at home? I want to wear this in Brooklyn at the market on Saturday. You know, so he taught us an interesting lesson, which was, it's actually kind of cool. It's a bit like a, you know, a Japanese kilt or something. It's, it's got that kind of hipster aspect to it, which is really interesting. And we deliberately made it in a quite masculine fabric. It's a, it's like a pinstripe. It's a bit like, you know, an old, railwayman's uniform that sort of strict uh, slightly strict and so we did that deliberately so that men would be comfortable wearing it because you know a man isn't going to wear a plaid blanket around his waist but this is kind of cool i mean you can wear it with a a black beanie and a roll neck sweater and 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 red wing boots you know and so and your your salvage jeans i mean it it it's hip it's it's actually pretty cool you wrap it around yourself and it, it attaches with the velcro and then you flip the waistband over and doing doing that it just makes it like snuggle in around your waist i think it's terrific and, and it, it takes us back to you know our grandmothers saying don't let your kidneys get cold now you know <laughs> which of course is very good <laughs> advice <laughs> yeah so this is it's it's a garment that evolved from the fact that I spent 90% of my days in leggings because I move a lot and I like to move freely, but I don't always, well, it's a modesty factor as well as a warmth factor. Just wrap this around me. Um, the Velcro means it's hands-free. If, if it was just a blanket wrapped around me, it would fall off when I got up and jumped around. Um, it comes with me, and and the whole being married to a Scotsman, the kilt effect just flew in there. <laughs> yeah. So, in fact, <laughs> we kind of said, instead of having a small company and making 150 different products and not making any money, how about we just have a small company making one product, and then we might actually sort of you know we might actually make a few euros but it's not for making money it's 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 a passion thing for us and we love it we love sharing it with people it it makes it's it's a thing that actually makes people happy funnily enough it just it's kind of fun it's kind of funky and handsome yeah and it's quite strange as a as a scotsman let me tell you if you go to a function in france wearing the kilt you get a lot of attention from the ladies and the husbands come around saying, no, no, dear, you don't need to talk to this guy anymore. You know, <laughs> there's a fascination with the kilt. And I think guys kind of like that. You know, you, I, if you wear it over your jeans, you're not taking any sort of risk. You're not wearing a skirt, but it's kind of cool. It, it's just different. We saw um, Brad Pitt wearing a kilt on the red carpet recently, yes. sort of khaki color. Looked pretty cool. We thought, yeah, Brad's following us. He's <laughs> well. There have been no end of uh, sort of hunky uh, chaps wearing uh, skirts in, over the years, indeed, haven't there? Indeed, yes. 
but but the Olaf isn't a, a skirt. It is not a skirt. Surely. Oh. It's oh. an Olaf. It's uh, the closest you could come to say skirt is it's a kilt blanket. But it's not a skirt. And it's locally made by ethical House? workers and <laughs> Oh, it's made made by yourself as well. <laughs> We're doing we have a very small production chain for batch number one. Yeah, we we'll, we'll be doing it outside uh, for the later, you know, the next batches. But we kind of wanted to do it in house. I mean, Diane particularly wanted to do it in house, and it makes it kind of fun and more personal. And but we've got sewing people. You know, we can go to a factory and, and get them made. It's not a problem. But. Uh, I think there's something very nice about them being made at home. And that's another thing that we actually, I spoke to the mayor of the village a couple of days ago and I, I, I was talking to him about our business and saying, you know, we might try to get a couple of people from the village. I was going to say ladies, but obviously they could be men. Um, a couple of people from the village to come and sew with us, you know, just set up a, a little production chain. That would be really fun if it was employing people in the village. <laughs> That would be great. But we like that localization aspect. Yeah. So my question about worker exploitation, that sort of falls flat. So, um, no, yeah. no, no, she's very exploited. <laughs> 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 Just look at her. She suffers. <laughs> I can see the big smile there. <laughs> I can't. I enjoy putting love into product. So, yeah, I'm happy doing this. It makes me really happy. I can't get her to stop working in the evenings, you know. So I have to say, time up, you know, time up. Blew the whistle. Let's let's play cards. Do you think of this think of this as tall as your sort of swan song in the industry? Is it sort of uh, your final finger to everything... That's crap. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I think we'll probably try and do a bit like Frank Sinatra and have several swan songs. But the 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 TV series that we might do would be a fabulous swan song in terms of sharing knowledge of textiles around the world. Um, but yeah, this as in terms of product, yes, absolutely, swan song. And what we might do because it really does work with a roll neck sweater and a beanie. So we might possibly, if I can persuade Diane, add two more products to our minimalistic line in the next year or two. So it would be like a, you know, an outfit of sorts. So for, so for the cold hipster. Trouble is global warming's not helping us actually, Nick. We need it to get colder. No, it has made me uh, appreciate Scottish lambs wool sweaters even more. <laughs> yes. And I, I find it utterly fantastic that there are so many, or well, maybe not so many, but so productive factories in Scotland still making fantastic sweaters at a very affordable price. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I go up to, well, as I say, I visited almost all of them a few weeks ago. But I particularly like Harley up in Peterhead, who make those seamless sweaters using the pure Shetland yarn. You know, on, on the islands, uh, on Shetland, there are, there are only about, 
I think five or six thousand purebred Shetland sheep. There's lots of crossbreeds, but the pure ones, there's only about five thousand. And they call that the Voe. I don't know if you're familiar with that, V O E. That's the Voe wool. No. And they're spinning a worsted yarn out of it, which is spun in Yorkshire. And those sweaters are just unbelievable because they're so light. They're very light and very warm. But I'm a bit fussy about sweaters. I don't like them when they're too compact and you get a bit claustrophobic. And these ones are just perfect. Absolutely. And also beautiful colors, you know, the natural brands. Just they've got six different colors from beige through to chocolate brown. Uh, Just the heather brands, no dyeing. So, I mean, that's the thing. If If you can eliminate dyeing from your textile production, that's a huge benefit environmentally. That sounds wonderful. Very interesting. It does. Yeah. Oh, I came across one thing that you would love, actually. Um, Pebble Island wool. Do you know where Pebble Island is? It's in the Falklands. One island, one farm, one flock of sheep. And the wool is extraordinary. It's very long staple. Very, very white, very clean, hardly any vegetable matter. And uh, a fine micron, it's about 23 micron, I think. But um, that's interesting. Sorry, that's apropos to nothing at all, except it popped into my head, as in terms of taking... I, 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 love, I live for these sort of little, <laughs> little things like this. Uh, I mean, I find that the more time I spend as a, a sort of enthusiastic outsider of the garment business, um, the more blasé I get. And I've sort of seen everything, and I'm interested in certain things, other things I'm completely disinterested in, but I'm always looking for something new to make me excited. Mm. Oh, here's another thing. And here, oh, go, ahead, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've got me going. Hit me. Um, I'm talking with somebody in the UK about doing something which is very dear to my heart, which would absolutely suit you. And maybe I'll talk to you about it and get your opinions going forward but um i want to make something that i call the craftsman suit so it's like you know i don't wear a suit i i, I have had suits neither, neither do i right so yeah. it's it's the kind of antithesis of the brooks brothers suit it's more like if you imagine a blacksmith in ireland who is dragged along to mass on sunday and he's just itching to get to the pub afterwards and have a few pints of Guinness. And he's wearing this probably sort of brown and charcoal mix, three-piece tweed suit, probably with tackety boots and pretty much definitely not a tie. But you can you can then it's all very rounded, you know, it's it's sort of it's it's Lips. quite a it's a gritty fabric. It's lived in, it looks like He's maybe stored it in a peat bog or something. It's, it's got that sort of ancient feeling to it. And, you know, you can you can actually mix and match like I'm sure you do. I think I've seen you do this sort of thing where you could wear the jacket and waistcoat with a pair of jeans or chinos or you could wear, you know, uh, just the waistcoat with other things or you, you can you can mix it around and the the whole feeling would be to, to actually to make yes. Talk about swan song. What I would love to do would be a very small range of manswear around that story. 
the craftsman, you know. That is very close to my heart. And I often see that idea spoken of as a sort of capsule wardrobe, which I think is a it just oh, silly, silly expression. But really, it describes a wardrobe where basically all the bits sort of fit together. Yeah, yeah. So you can have an exponential amount of variations, yeah. but it's all stuff that is within the same sort of... It's sort of five key pieces. But it, it, that, that does ask you to respect those key pieces it, in the way that... Okay, so I am a certain age. When I grew up, I was raised by parents who went through the war. Good clothes... You could wear them for every day, but they had to be respected and they had to be folded. They had to be properly hung. They couldn't be worn every day. You, you, didn't, ha you didn't have a selection of good clothes. You had the one capsule, which you accessorized to fit in other things. And that's, that respect for the capsule, for want of a better word, is what you'd need to get back along with your capsule. And then it's a goer. Yeah, so, I think it's the word capsule that really sort of turns me away okay. because whenever I see it mentioned, it's no, because like, someone like has a, a range of sad beige, capsule, black and white is, basics. A capsule is something you take with your breakfast, you know, to give yourself some zinc or something. So, by the way, there's another key piece. For about 10 years, I worked as a consultant for a company in Belgium called Libeco. It's like the best linen weaver in the world. And we, in our company, made some shirts with a heavy linen from Libeco. And when I showed my heavy linen shirt, which is actually the natural flax color, and it's been washed 50 times, I showed it to the guys in Filson, and they went crazy about it. So this suit, by the way, this is not Filson, this is us, but um, it would have, you would wear a heavy linen shirt with your tweed suit. And I've actually identified a fabric for the suit which is a blend of wool and cotton i like the cotton aspect because it just makes it a bit more casual and you know it, it just works but rather than pure wool and that's actually woven in england so i like that but you know you yeah. get the thing it's like the the linen shirt's very rugged it's it, it's not a shirt and tie shirt it's something that's a, a living thing so each piece should be like that it's kind of like the vintage garments you dream of finding now, but they don't exist. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's, and okay, the vintage garments, that's why when we did the Olaf, if you look at this fabric, it is more reminiscent of 1930s yeah, wool than true. it is of modern wool. It's, it's, it's the, it is the vintage quality new. It's ancient. It's ancient. When I was wearing, I was wearing a Filson jacket, and I'm not pushing Filson, by the way, um, but <laughs> I, I bought this Filson jacket that I really like. It's a, it's a plaid, which is unusual for me, but in the very, very heavy boiled wool. And I was talking to Nigel Caborn on a video call. You know Nigel, right? And Nigel said to me, "Oh, you, I see you, you found a, a vintage Filson jacket." I said, "No, Nigel, this is new." And it suddenly occurred to me that we were making new vintage, which is kind of exciting. Because it, it literally, you could hang that in an Army-Navy store and, or you know, whatever, a vintage store, and it totally just fits in. Well, plus it is the it's quality right. that will live long enough to become 
future generations vintage yeah. pieces. But it's it interesting. It's interesting because it's it. not it's not like aged like you know washed denim or something. It's not it's not artificially aged. It just it's right. You know, it's the right thing. So that's yeah. what I'd like the craftsman thing to be. And I do have somebody in mind to do that with, but I can't tell you because I haven't told him yet. <laughs> but it's a company in the UK. <laughs> right. Okay. We have uh, things to speak of. Yeah. Yes. Well, that all sounds very promising. I look forward to seeing it. I, I think you might be the one and of the first people to see it, Nick, if I do it. I will have you brilliant. lined up. Maybe modelling it. So, apart from recommending that everyone who works from home should have a Olaf, is there anything we should mention uh, sort of in closing? Well, I'd like to say what a pleasure it's been talking with you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for inviting us onto your podcast, which I think is a terrific podcast, and I think you do a great job. Agreed. We both agree on that. So thank you. Thank you very much, and the pleasure was um, probably mostly mine. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Diane and James. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Nick. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Yep. Super. Okay. Thank you, Nick. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>